Hello and welcome back. In this episode, we talk about Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew ancient Hebrew states at war, their their militaries and um, political events, especially um, the society's responses to um, social trauma. So we talk about war. The Hebrews do not have a, um, especially before. David, they do not have a professional army in the New Kingdom Egypt, Assyrian Empire sort of way. Um, later on, they'll develop chariot, charioteers, chariot armies that are um, significant. They're second-ranked, second they're middle-ranked power, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, they're significant. The Hebrews are always more significant than the little, than, than other little peoples, um, but they're not as big as Egypt, Assyria, Persia, you know, type situations. Um, the reason why they don't have a um, a professional army is they have a tribal army instead. The tribal army has lots of people with no training. Now that sounds you may look at that and go, oh, that's silly. Why would you have that? Well, remember, armies are expensive in the ancient world. And the thing is, is that this army had limited goals. And the limited goal was the promised land, was the conquest of the land of Cana that God had promised to Moses. So, um, so these are the armies we're talking about where you need a lot of people in your military. And you're not as concerned with their ability because here's the problem. You're not trying to beat people up and take their stuff. When the Hebrews show up in Cana, there's a problem because the Canaanites are there. Other Canaanites are there. They're in the promised land. Well, what do you got to do to the people in the promised land? You got to kick them out. You don't want them to stay. You don't want them to remain. You don't want to marry them. You don't want to take their wallets. You just want them to leave. It's like throwing a kegger and waking up in the morning and having like 15 people still crashed in your living room. You don't want to like punch them in the face and take their money, you know, steal their credit cards. No, you want them out of your house. You're going to pick them up, and you want to throw them out. Well, that's essentially what this army does. Basically, you give everybody a stick and poke people until they leave. Um, so the, pro the purpose is to conquer a small territory, the Palestine, this, this land from the Jordan to the sea and from the mountains of Lebanon uh, or Phoenicia onto the desert, and to the eject the people within it who are already there, to kick them out. Um, what that creates is a small regional power. The Hebrews are um, always a second-ranked power in comparison to the big three that are that are always in the Middle East. Um, they are they're they're more significant than lots of the small, little tiny powers. But you know when you talk about Babylon or Egypt, they're they just are smaller than that. They don't have the resources to compete. Uh, later on, the in order to catch up to be remain a independent middle ranked power, um, they will create a small chariot Mesopotamian type army. 
um, they live in a tough neighborhood of Mesopotamia, and they do evolve to to um, keep up. The problem is is that they will be crushed by the more professional troops of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, especially Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Um, later on will be the Greeks, later on will be the Romans. Um, but, and there's not really, a, a, you know, there's some revolts that are more than a war of conquest for the Greeks and the Romans. But Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon all kind of roll, ste- come steaming through, and they will wreck, wreck the place. So, um, we have a middle-ranked power, significant military power, um, but always kind of in the balance of trying to play or remain independent in a world between Babylon, Egypt, and some kind of other northern power, Assyria, the Hittites. Um, there's always the Phoenician and the Philistine cities that are out there too. So there's always this kind of... They're smaller ranked powers, but there's always this kind of nearby enemy as well, not just these these far away superpowers. Um, so on to events. Uh, we start with about 1300 BC or so. Uh, Moses leads the Hebrews out of Egypt. This is um, the tradition and more or less the historical period we're talking about. That puts the Hebrews as one of these Bronze Age peoples that are on the move, which is fits the tradition. The traditional story is um, the Hebrews are a Semitic people. Uh, they're one of the only two Semitic peoples to, to survive out of the ancient world, I think. Only two. There's the Hebrews, the Jews, and the um, Arabs. Those are the two language groups, the two languages, the Semitic languages that survive. Um, most of the other peoples are long since gone. And the tradition is, is one of movement, uh, from Abraham to, um, Joseph to Moses to this, that they are nomadic, they're nomadic peoples trying to find the settled home, trying to first get there and then get back there. And, and so there's always this, this, um, Part of this aspect is this movement, which would fit in the Bronze Age collapse, that everybody was up and moving in this time period. And so that the Hebrews would be one of those people makes complete sense. Um, In 1050, between 1050 and 970, you get uh, David creating what is probably um, Israel, ancient Israel, at its its height. Uh, David will build Jerusalem. And why would he build Jerusalem? Um, it's because just like the Assyrians will build Nineveh, the Persians will build Persepolis, you build Jerusalem because you need a Mesopotamian-type cities because Babylon is out there. And Babylon is huge. And if you want to say, hey, your, your calling card is, I got a big city too. Look at my city. It shows that the Hebrews are significant, that they're not one of these wimpy people who don't have cities, who still live in villages. So David builds Jerusalem, but it is Solomon who will build the temple, and the temple will be enormous. There's one God, so there will be one temple, and they're going to pour all their money into the temple and make it enormous, so that by one estimate, the temple was uh, 30%, 33% of the square footage 
in Jerusalem inside the walls. You know, one out of every three feet was dedicated to not housing, not businesses, but to the temple space. So it tells you right away that the temple is the most important place in Hebrew society. It is the center of the center for Hebrew society. Now, so you have David, then you have Solomon, and things are good. Um, there's some strain that's going on at the end of Solomon's reign. And when he dies, the his kingdom of Israel breaks into two parts, into a northern part and a southern part. That northern part, and this is about 930 B.C., um, is Israel. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. It's, it splits into two pieces. Israel is the richer, more urbanized, more populous, more sophisticated, and far more Mesopotamian part of the two. Judah, on the other hand, is more traditional, much more conservative, more religious. Um, also, it had Jerusalem. Now, the interesting thing is it had Jerusalem, but uh, on maps of kind of ancient trade routes, the trade routes bypass Jerusalem. They, they go through the shore. They go through the Phoenician slash Philistine cities. And by way, they cross through a lot of Israelite cities, Israel cities. And they kind of bypass the Judean cities. The Judean cities were traditional, conservative, homogeneous, maybe even xenophobic. They didn't want the pollution of other people in their traditions. The Israelite people, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, were far more a part of the Mesopotamian world culture. And that's going to get them into trouble. Um, they're going to join a war against Assyria and uh, with the Egyptians and the Babylonians. And the Assyrians are going to smash them, smash everybody. Smash Babylonians, smash the Egyptians, and then come looking for vengeance. And it's one thing if you're Babylon, and it's another thing if you're Egypt. If you're a little dinky, second-rate power, and you revolt against the, per the Assyrians, that's bad. And around 720 BC, the Assyrian army rolls into Israel and obliterates it. Absolutely obliterates it, destroys it, picks up the people and scatters them, and they disappear. That is the ten lost tribes of Israel. That's is all um, ancient Hebrews claim the descent from one of the twelve sons of uh, Jacob of Israel. And what the Assyrians did was wipe out ten of them. This is a huge trauma. This is depopulation. This is genocide, what the Assyrians did. Um... They, the Hebrews aren't the only people. The Israelites were not the only people they did this to. They did it to several other people. The Romans will attempt to do the same thing when they sack Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, you, you destroy the people's cities, societies. You then pick up the people, enslave them, and scatter them. It's what the Romans did to the to Carthaginians. That the Carthage was once a very important place, one of the richest places in the Western Mediterranean, a competitor to Rome, by the time the Romans got done with it, Carthaginians simply didn't exist. Carthage was destroyed, and Carthaginians were gone. 
They've been picked up, enslaved, spread out, and they disappear. They marry into other families. They marry into other peoples. And a hundred years later, they're gone. And the Assyrians did that to the ten tribes of Israel. This is a huge trauma if you're the Judeans. If you're the Hebrews that are left, which is the minority, um, this is this one needs to be explained. We're the chosen people. How could God allow this to happen? Um, how do we prevent this from happening again? This is a huge trauma for Judea. And in fact, in seven... In 707 or so, Sennacherib will lay siege to Jerusalem and nearly obliterate Judea. Will come within an ace of, of obliterating Judea. Um, a combination of what is probably simply disease within his army and being in such an Arab, arid place without clean water um, would hurt his army and being bribed to go away. I mean, um, Jerusalem does not win the war. They just don't get destroyed. Um, Judea becomes a a um, tributary province to Assyria, to Sennacherib. But this needs to be explained. And for a religious p- people, this trauma has a religious explanation. And the re- religious explanation in 720 BC of why Israel was destroyed was they weren't Hebrew enough. They were too Mesopotamian. They, they, they dealt. They liked Mesopotamian gods. They weren't following the rules. They were too sophisticated. They were too liberal in their interpretations of the laws. They were too sophisticated. They, they weren't grounded enough. And what you get is a conservatism, a literal view of the law. Because you do not want this God to be mad. And so you get a very conservative Judea. These are the laws. We're going to follow the laws. We're going to follow the laws to the letter of the law. And that is a very important part. So things should be great. Judea should should survive. God should be happy. Uh, Yahweh should be happy. Everything should be fine. It's sad that the ten tribes got destroyed, but the lesson was learned. Well, Assyria is obliterated. The Persians and the Medes come in. The Assyrians are obliterated. And there was that 50-year period where the Medes were doing their thing, the Persians were doing their thing, and suddenly Babylon and Egypt went at it again. Babylon and Egypt were like, hey, it's like the old days. And they went at it again. And in 585, Nebuchadnezzar a king of Babylon rolled in on his way to Egypt. He was he wanted to go and attack Egypt, so he rolls into Judea and smashes Jerusalem. Absolutely. And he, he tears down the walls, tears down the temple, obliterates Jerusalem, picks, um, destroys the temple, picks most of the Hebrews up that are economically or culturally worth anything, and carries them off to Babylon. And this is called the Babylonian captivity. And this is a huge trauma. That requires for religious people a religious response. Well, can it be a punishment? No, because they were following the law. 
they were doing. They had learned their lesson from the destruction of Israel. They were going to follow the law as well as one could. And so they shouldn't be punished. And so there are plenty of people at the Babylon captivity who leave, who stop being Hebrews. They say, you know what? I'm done. This God isn't protecting me. Remember what gods do in the ancient world. The number one thing gods do is protection. They protect their people. And this Hebrew God ain't doing it. The evidence is pretty clear. If the Assyrians can roll in and obliterate Israel, and then the Babylonians roll in and destroy his temple, his place on earth, well, then this God has no power. If this God can't protect his own house, what good is he? How is he going to protect me? And so... What happens, though, is for those who remain, for those who want to remain loyal, for those who say, no, 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 we have the right God, it can't be a punishment. That, that answer won't work. No one will buy that answer. So why did this happen? Why did the Babylonian captivity happen? And the answer they come up with is that it's a test. It's a test of faith. See, here's the thing. If I'm the chosen people and I've got the right God, here's the thing. Does this God want wimps as his people? Does this God want fair-weather friends as his people? Does this God want people who only love him and trust him? It could be a her, of course. It's a bean. I'm going with the, the paternal, I'm sorry. But does this God want only people who will, will be loyal when things are good, when times are great, when they're getting what they want? That's a selfish people. And so it's a test of faith. Because if you can love this God when things are bad, that's real faith. And you'll be rewarded for it. It's a test. So there has to be a way of passing this test. There has to be a thing that happens that says, you passed. And there is a generation later. In 538, Cyrus, the Persian, conquers Babylon, meets with the Hebrews, and says, why don't you go back? I'll send you back. I'll give you the money to go back. You had a city? They go, well, we had a city. And it was a big city. It was an awesome city. I mean, it's no Babylon, but for us, it was a good city. Well, here's money. Here's the architects. Here's engineering. Here's the stuff to help you rebuild. Well, we had a temple. We, we only have one God. We, so we only have one temple. So it was a pretty big temple. It's really expensive to build. And, he sa- and Cyrus says, great. Here's the money. Here's the engineers. Go do it. Do you need any more help? Cyrus will return the Hebrews from the Babylonian captivity to the promised land. Which is why Cyrus, even though he's a polytheistic Persian, is one of the messiahs of the Old Testament. He's the only one that is not Hebrew. But the idea, the story is, that this Jewish God worked through Cyrus to reward his people. And so that the idea is it's a test. Now that is very important. That the Babylonian captivity is the thing that essentially turns Hebrews into Jews, as one historian um, 
I've, I've listened to lectures from described it, turns the Hebrews into Jews. Because you get a lot of things you would recognize in modern Judaism out of the Babylonian captivity. There will be a temple, yes, but the synagogues become important. The, there will be priests, but the rabbi becomes very important, the person who knows the laws, which is the, the rabbi is the teacher. And the basic part of the rabbi is not that they're part of the priesthood, that they're part of a, a special caste. It's that they're simply knowledgeable. Um, the idea that, and it's, it's an older idea, but the importance of literacy, that um, a boy becomes a man, not by killing somebody. In many traditions, you go off to war. But a boy becomes a man by reading out of the Torah, by knowing the law, by being literate. Um, so that individuals were empowered to know. Uh, the idea that religious ceremonies could be done with small groups, that you didn't need thousands. You could have ten people, and it, it was a religious ceremony. It counted that God was there, approved of it, and everything worked. All of those things that are incredibly important to the self-identity and the cohesiveness of, this, of the Hebrew society are formed in this Babylonian captivity and will allow the Hebrews to survive where other civilizations disappear, especially when the Romans come in. Because the Romans are going to pick up, to destroy Judea, destroy Jerusalem, pick them up, and scatter them to the four corners of the Roman Empire. Um, and the idea is they'll, they'll marry local people, and, and in 100 years they'll disappear. And that doesn't happen. And a lot of the reason why that doesn't happen, where it happens to plenty of other people, is this kind of foundation, this trauma, but this response to the trauma, that it's a test, that we are the chosen people, that this is a test, and we have to pass this test. And so that ends our ancient heroes. That ends our part one of our class, our first third. And so we will move on. The next one we're going to do is Greeks and Greek geography. We always start with geography. And that will be part two of our class. So um, good luck. I hope you enjoyed these so far. The test is next. So get ready. And um, I'll see you when we do the Greeks on the other side of the test. So, good luck.